Welcome to the Scott Ross Discipleship Podcast. Scott has been discipling men and women for more than 20 years and is passionate about helping you grow into the full measure of the maturity of Christ. Grab your Bible, something to write with, and your favorite warm beverage. And let's listen as Scott takes us deeper in our walk with God. All right, everybody, welcome to this week's online discipleship program. Appreciate you logging in live, or if you're watching this video after the fact, appreciate you taking the time to do that. We're going to be in John chapter 11 today, as well as we're going to be continuing our study through the book, How to Study Your Bible by Kay Arthur. We're going to be in chapter 8. So if you're playing along at home, get those two resources out and available and a pen and paper to take some notes. We're going to do quite a bit of cross-referencing today, and today we're going to be talking about maybe the most significant thing you can talk about. In fact, no maybe about it. It is the most significant things you can talk talk about, and that is the question, what happens when you die? I know that this is something that most people want to know, and people have vague ideas about what happens when you die. Well, we're going to look at what God says happens when we die. So it's going to be a very edifying study. So let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Uh, Thank you for the people who are online right now going through this material. I pray that it would be edifying. I pray, Lord, that you will guide them into the truth and that they will know your Son and that in knowing him they will have eternal life and true freedom. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. Let's jump into uh, the book, How to Study Your Bible, and uh, we're in chapter 8, which is called Let's Figure It Out, and this is going to be, um, we're going to begin to do a discussion of figurative language. Now, you know, you hear a lot of people say things when you, when you're, you know, people find out pretty quickly that I'm a Christian and that I'm passionate about the Bible, I'm passionate about theology and apologetics and Bible study. And, you know, when I'm on an airplane or I'm sitting in a hotel somewhere or, you know, I'm meeting new people and they find this out, they say things to you just, you know, it's just common things you hear, such as, oh, yeah, well, you know, the Bible, it, you know, it's just so full of contradictions. And I always like to just smile and say, well, which one in particular concerns you? And uh, there's total silence because, of course, they don't know any actual contradictions. They just heard someone else say the Bible has contradictions, so they just regurgitate that rote without even you know, trying to study or figure it out for themselves. Well, another thing you hear is something like, well, you know, the Bible's so figurative. I mean, there's so many ways to interpret it. Well, actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible is not super figurative. And in fact, most one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that unlike other spiritual literature, other spiritual writings like the writings of Hinduism or um, Buddhism or even Islam to a large degree— the Bible's very practical. The Bible's very, very straightforward, and it is, um, you know, in large parts a history book. Uh, so it's just presenting historical fact. And then the theological parts of the Bible are very, very straightforward. <clears throat> so there's not a lot of figurative uh, information in the Bible. Of course, there is some, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But what we want to do when we come to the scripture is. We want to do good hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is how to interpret Scripture, and that's what we've been studying using this book, How to Study Your Bible. And, 
you know, one of the things is we take the Bible at its face. We t- when it says something like God so loved the world, we say that means he loved the world. We don't try to, you know, massage the language or twist it to mean something that it didn't. And when there's a plain reading of the scripture, for the most part, with almost no exceptions, the plain reading is going to mean what it says. But there is some figurative language there. And so when we come to figurative language, we want to approach it in the right way. So let me just go back and say it a little different way because I want to make this very clear. You want to take the Bible literally in every place that it is literal. Don't make literal language figurative. Don't try to twist the literal language like, you know, there's liberal theologians who will say things like, well, God didn't really make the world in six days. The six days mean something else. Well, Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a fish. That's just a metaphor for some greater truth. No, the Bible's not trying to present a metaphor there. The, the Bible is presenting it as historical fact, and therefore we want to treat it as historical fact. Christ himself treated the Bible's explanation of the world being made in six days as literal fact, as historical truth. So we should do the same. But when we come to figurative language, we want to approach the figurative language in the right way. <clears throat> and so we're going to go through some rules for how to handle figurative language. So there's three principles that are presented in this book for how to um, handle figurative language. The first is to identify the fact that you're dealing with figurative language. So again, most of the Bible is going to be very, very straightforward, very practical, very plain to read. So when we come to figurative language, we want to identify it as such, and we're going to go through the different types of figurative language here in a moment so that you'll know when you see figurative language, so you'll be able to recognize it. And if you don't see one of the types of figurative language that we're about to identify, you're not dealing with figurative language. You're dealing with language you should take in a straightforward manner. You should take literally. Number two, identify the type of figurative language. So Once we know, okay, I'm in figurative territory here, which kind of figurative language is it? Because we're going to approach each one of those slightly different. And then last, follow the guidelines for that type of figurative language. So let's talk about the different types of figurative language, and let's give you examples of each kind. And the first one used in the book is simile. So a simile is an expression of a where you state a comparison of two different things or two like things. So, for instance, if you see the word like, you know you're in simile territory. If you see as or such as or as dot 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 so dot dot dot, that is a simile. So some examples are Revelation 1.14, his eyes were like a flame of fire. We see the word like there, so we know it's a simile. His eyes were not flames of fire. They were like a flame of fire. And then Psalm 42.1, very famous, as the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Does this mean that the writer of the Psalms literally is panting? No. It's a very beautiful, poetic way to say that just like a deer thirsts after water, this person, metaphorically speaking, in a simile rather, they pant or they thirst for the Word of God. 
So when we see like or as and so, we're going to know that we're dealing with a simile, which is figurative language. And we should not take it to mean the literal thing, like his eyes were like flames of fire. doesn't mean his eyes were on fire. The next kind of figurative language is a metaphor. And a metaphor is an implied comparison between two things. It's different because it doesn't use the word like. It It's more implied rather than stated. So some examples are John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He could have said, I am like a vine and you are like branches, but he didn't. He used metaphor instead of simile. Now, obviously, Jesus does not mean he is growing out of the ground and we are growing off of him. We're not to take that literally, but he's explaining a very deep theological truth there, and he's using metaphor to do it. Ephesians 6.17 says, The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here the Word is compared to a sword. So obviously, if you're holding the Bible in your hand, it's not sharp in the sense that a sword is sharp that's going to cut you, or if you swipe it at someone, it won't slice through them. But it is like a sword in the sense that the Word becomes our weapon and our defense. So, It's metaphor. It's an implied comparison rather than a stated comparison. The next uh, figurative type of language is exaggeration, otherwise known as hyperbole. And it is deliberate exaggeration for effect or emphasis. So here's an example of Psalm 119.20 says, My soul is crushed with longing. Well, a soul is not a physical thing, so it can't be physically crushed. It can't be literally crushed. The writer is using exaggeration there to express the depth of their grief. In Matthew 23, 24, it says, You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Well, obviously no one's swallowing a literal camel. It's a figure of speech that was used back in that day, and it is purposeful exaggeration. It is hyperbole to try to make a point. So when we see that sort of thing, exaggeration, we can recognize it as such and know that it is not to be taken literally. The next next one is a metonym, and a metonym is a figure of association when the name of one object or concept is used for that of another for which it's related. So in Mark 1.5, it says, all the country of Judea was going out to him. In this verse, the metonym is country, which refers to the people rather than the region itself. Notice that there's also a little bit of hyperbole there. All the country of Judea was going out to him. Uh, We don't necessarily believe that every single human being in Judea went out to him at the same time. But clearly, it was a huge number of people, and that's emphasized by the use of the word country. It doesn't mean that the physical piece of land that is the country of Judea like raised itself from a map and trotted over to Christ. No, it was that the people in the country went, but the word country was a metonym for the people who lived in that area. 
Then we get to the synecdache, which is another association where the whole can represent a part or the part can represent a whole. So, for instance, the law is often referred to in the Bible, and they will say it's the law, and they might mean one particular component of the law, such as keeping the Sabbath or circumcision. When, for instance, there was the debate between Paul and these people who were coming into Paul's churches and stating that you could not be really a Christian if you didn't keep the law, Uh, the whole book of Galatians is actually a response to that problem. Well, what they meant by keeping the law was that the people had to be circumcised, these these Gentile or Greek believers, when they came to faith in Christ, there were certain people who were saying, you're not really a Christian you're not, if you don't get circumcised. But they didn't say get circumcised. They said, if you don't keep the law. Well, the law as a whole was meant to refer to that one component of the law. So that's a synecdoche. Um, another example is where... Uh, Jeremiah 25, 29 says, a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth. Well, the Lord wasn't going to summon a single sword that was this giant planetary-sized weapon that was going to come across the earth. Rather, the singular word sword was going to represent all of the swords or the military conquest that the Lord was going to summon against the inhabitants of the earth. So that's the we use that all the time in English, you know. We we say similar things like, you know, we might say um to our enemies is the United States for instance, we might say, you know, if you don't do X, you're going to face, you know, the sword. Well, it doesn't mean that we're going to bring one sword. It means we're going to send our military might. So that's a synecdoche. So when we see that either a whole being used to represent a part or a part being used to represent a whole, we can recognize it for what it is. And then last two is a personification, and a personification is a, a you know very well-known literary mechanism. Isaiah 55, 12 uses an example, but it's where an object is given the characteristics of a person. So the trees of the fields will clap their hands, it says. We've got praise songs that sing that. You know, the trees of the field will clap their hands. Well, the trees don't actually have hands. What does it mean? It means that even nature will praise the Lord in and bring him glory. So it's a personification. We should not take that literally. Last is irony. And irony is a statement which says the opposite of what is meant. Um, irony is used for emphasis. So in 1 Corinthians 4.8, Paul says to the Corinthians, you're already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that we also might reign with you. Well, it's obvious that the Corinthians are not kings, nor does Paul want to reign with them. Therefore, we've got to understand he's saying something ironic here. He's saying the opposite of what he means, and we want to use context to understand what is he really getting at here. He's kind of poking the Corinthians here. When you study Corinthians, you'll see that, but he's not happy with the Corinthians in this particular section, and he's making it clear with his ironic statement like, hey, you're already a king. Yeah, I wish you had. Then I could come reign with you. No, 
They're not kings. He doesn't want to reign with them. He wants Christ to reign. Uh, 1 Kings 22, 1 through 23 um, says that a true prophet tells the king what he wants to hear, but it is a lie. It's obvious he is using irony because the king tells him to stop prophesying falsely and tell the truth. And there's a note in our book. It says, when it is not easy to discern if a statement is ironic, examine if first examine it first as a true statement. So if you can't quite tell, is this irony or not, just assume, well, it, let's assume it's true. Does it make any sense in context if it was true? If it's not, if it doesn't make sense, if it's not obvious that it makes sense, okay, let's consider it as irony. Now would it make sense? And if it makes sense in context as an ironic statement, then accept it as irony. If it doesn't, treat it as truth. So that is, uh, that is the figures of speech that you're going to find in the Bible and how to recognize them. Again, we're going to take the Bible literally. We're going we're gonna to read it plainly until we come across one of these figures of speech, um, one, of these, uh, or one of these types of figurative language. And when we, re- when we recognize it as figurative, we're going to go, okay, I'm in figurative territory here. What type of figurative language is it? And I deal with each one appropriately. So hopefully that is of help to you. So let's go to John chapter 11. And uh, here we're going to have a very famous couple of stories. And uh, I really want to um, I really want to get to some cross-references. So we're not going to spend a lot of time reading, but I really want to encourage you, if you haven't read John chapter 11, I want you to read it. Because it's the death and resurrection of Lazarus, and of course, we most people are familiar, even if they haven't read the Bible, they've heard at least that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, Lazarus, just so you know, was a good friend of Jesus, and Mary and Martha were also his friends, and I'll just want to read here in the beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. So obviously Jesus loves him. But when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the wor- of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die 
with him. So the disciples expect they're going to go die with Jesus. They think if Jesus goes back, he's going to die because he knows the Pharisees are seeking to kill him, or they know the Pharisees are seeking to kill him, and he's going back to the place where the Pharisees are. Now, verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, you got to understand here, this means that his body has already begun to rot. This means that he is decaying. He is past the point of no return. He is past the point when he can be saved. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary and to, co- to console them concerning their brother. <clears throat> so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She thinks that Jesus is talking about the end of time. Jesus says to her, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The greatest statement that any person can make from the depth of their heart is right there, John eleven twenty seven. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were with her in the house consol- consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also were weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, by the way, a little trivia, shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, two words, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. He's rotting. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you had believed that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people come standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now we're going to skip verses 45 through 57 for right now because I want to focus on this concept of life and death. And we have a very significant and famous passage in John eleven seventeen through 27 in which Jesus makes a very earth-shattering statement. 
And then he asks a question of the disciples, and it's the same question that I'm going to ask of you. He says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then here is the million-dollar question. Do you believe this? I would just ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? That whoever believes in Christ, though he dies, shall actually live. That everyone who lives and believes in Christ shall never die. This question, what happens when we die? Where do we go when we die? Do we go anywhere when we die? It's something that every human who has ever lived has pondered. And Christianity has a very distinctive answer to that question. It is different from every other faith system in the world. And it is by definition, because it is true, exclusive. Some people claim that Christians are somehow arrogant or judgmental because we say we are the only true thing, that we have the only way. Well, we didn't say we have the only way. Jesus said he has the only way. In fact, he doesn't have the only way. He is the only way. So we're quoting Christ. If you disagree, take it up with him. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So I want to do some cross-references to see what does the Bible tell us happens at death. Let's not use conjecture. Let's go to the inspired, holy, infallible Word of God. And let's begin with John 3.16, another super famous passage. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What do we learn from this verse? Obviously, God loved the world. God was willing to sacrifice his Son. And whoever believes in the Son will not perish but have eternal life. So what we learn here is that those who believe in the Son of God, those who believe in Jesus Christ, will live eternally. They will never die, just as Christ has said in chapter 11 that we just read. Let's move further in John and look at chapter 5, verse 21 and 24. So we go to John chapter 5, verse 21. He says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. If we skip forward to verse 24, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Now we learn some significant things here. First, we see a restatement of this idea that whoever believes in Jesus shall have eternal life. But here it doesn't say believes in Jesus. It says believes him who sent me. Meaning, if you believe Jesus, you believe the Father. And if you believe the Father, you believe in Jesus. They are one in the same. They are one God, three persons, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, meaning God the Father, has eternal life. But we also see something else significant here, and that is that all of the dead are going to rise. See, it says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. So everybody's going to rise, but there's going to be a portion of those people that rise. They're going to go with the Son. They're going to have an eternity with the Son. And then there is a judgment that those people will be able to avoid. Look at the end of verse 24. Those who believe him who sent me have eternal life, and he, or those people, do not come into judgment. What this says is that everyone else that the Father has raised, referring back to verse 21, will come into judgment. So we're starting to see something clearly. Everyone is going to rise from the dead at the end of time, but only a certain portion of those people will go on to eternity with God. Those are going to be the ones that believe in Christ and believe the one that sent Christ, meaning God the Father. Everyone else will face judgment. Let's look at John chapter 6, verse 37, and a few verses following that. John chapter 6, verse 37, Christ says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Skip down to verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Skip down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here again, we see the same idea. Jesus is going to raise those up who are his followers. Those that believe in him will be raised up on the last day, and they will spend eternity with him. Everyone that has been given to Christ will be, in, will be with Christ in the end. Uh, no one can snatch someone out of Christ's hand that has come to him in faith and put their faith in Christ. Let's look at one more in John, and that's going to be chapter 8. Verse 51, if we look at John 8, 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. We're a little bit of a broken record now. We just keep saying the same thing. You believe in Christ, you will never know death. Even though your body may die temporarily, you will have eternal life. You will be with Christ. You will be with the Father forever. Now let's look outside of this idea and go to Philippians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. Here the Apostle Paul is in prison and he's struggling with something. And let's listen in on what he's struggling with. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. See, he's sitting in prison, and he's not suicidal in the sense that we would think of someone suicidal. He's not, you know, uh, seeking out his own death. But he is contemplating the fact that he would really like to die because if his body dies, he goes to heaven. And he's sitting here in prison, and 
all he can think about is how awesome it would be to be with Christ. And he's torn because he knows that if he stays here on earth, it's going to mean fruitful labor for him. And he's going to end up doing things that bring glory to his Savior. But if he dies, he gets to go away and be with his Savior forever. And that's awesome too. So he's hard-pressed. Which shall he choose? And he says... To remain, in verse 24, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with your with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What he ends up choosing is, I'm going to stick it out here with you guys because I love you. You're my brothers and sisters. I want to see your progress and joy in the faith, and my day to be with Jesus is coming. What it says here is that he didn't fear death at all. If you are a Christian, if you believe in Christ, if you have placed your trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, you're trusting in what he has done rather than what you can do, you have no fear of death because they can destroy your body and you will immediately be in the presence of the Lord. Let's go back to John real quickly and look at John 14 verses 1 through 3. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is actually an allusion to Jewish marital custom, in which when a young man was going to marry a young woman, his father and he would build onto the family home. They would actually build a brand new wing, if you will. And of course, it wouldn't have been that elaborate for the average Jewish person. It would have been very humble, but it would have been just an extra room. And that extra room would be where the bride and groom were going to begin their marital life together. They would live in the groom's father's house. And so the groom would go to prepare a place for the bride. Well, we know that Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And so he's saying here, in my father's house are many rooms and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. This is marriage language. We are going to have an intimate relationship with Christ. We will live with him Forever, He is going to take us unto himself, and wherever he is, we get to be. What a glorious thought. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says here, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Absent from the body is present with with the Lord. If you die, when you leave your physical body, you are going to be with the Lord, assuming that you're a Christian. Let's look at one more. Revelation 21, verse 3 through 6. And John writing says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And 
He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We will dwell with God forever if we believe in Christ. If we have placed our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He is the resurrection and the life. And he will make his dwelling with us in eternity. Now, what if you don't believe in Christ? What happens to you? Well, let's see what the Bible says about that. Let's go back to John chapter 3. In the same place where he says the famous, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal or shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's see what he says in contrast to that about those who do not believe. And let's go to 3.36, John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, this is very significant. We've already seen that all the dead are going to be raised So in a sense, we all have eternal life. But some of us, those who deny Christ, those who reject his free gift of salvation, are going to have the wrath of God on them for eternity rather than live in the description we just had from Revelation where there shall be no tears, there shall be no hunger, there shall be no thirst, and we will dwell with the Most High. And I want to put... A point on this wording, the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is not something we get by trying to get it. See, we're born as sinners. When we are born, we are already depraved. We are utterly incapable of coming to God or pleasing God in any way because we have a sinful nature. And then From the moment we're born, we begin to operate and act out that sinful nature. We are covetous. We are jealous. We are angry. We are, you know, um, people who take the name of the Lord in vain. We lie. We steal. We cheat. And so the wrath of God is already on us. If you are not a believer in Christ, I am saying this in love. I am not saying this to sound like, you know, a Puritan who wants to hit you over the top of the head with a Bible. I'm saying this because it is true. I was in this exact same position. If you do not know Christ, if you have not trusted in him, the wrath of God is already on you. And if you do not trust in Christ, the wrath simply remains on you for eternity. Let's look at again at John chapter 5 and see what the contrast is there. John chapter 5, verse 28 through 29 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Every single human who has ever lived will get out of their grave, and some will go to life, and some will go to face judgment. The ones that face judgment are those who have denied the Son of God. Let's look at John chapter 8 
for the contrast in this chapter. We read from John chapter 8 before. John chapter 8 verse 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You know, there are some faith systems in the world that tell you a lot of things you can do. You know, if you pray facing such and such direction at such and such times a day, or, you know, you follow these little, um, you know, sequences of events that you're supposed to do, like you do this good thing or you pay this penance, then you can be forgiven for your sin. Well, the problem is, even if it were true that if, let's say today I started following one of those faith systems, and so for my sin, moving forward, every time I sinned, I would do the little work. If somehow that could help, which of course it can't, but let's just hypothetically say it could. The problem is that I've got all the sin that happened before I started following that faith system. What do we do with that? See, that sin is still on me. That blemish is still on my record. Something has to be done about that. And that's what Jesus did. He paid the price for all the sin of all time. And unless we believe that he is who he said he is, we're going to die in that sin. Let's look at two more from Revelation as, again, final contrast for those who don't believe. Let's look at Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what is written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's a scary proposition to reject Christ and to stand before your creator and try to explain to him why you rejected him. Those who do are going to be judged based on what they've done. You see, Christ paid the penalty for what I did. And so when I stand before Christ at the end, I will not see what I have done because it will be covered by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb will have washed my sin clean. I will have been justified before the judge of all judges. But those who do not have the covering of the blood of the Lamb, they have no other choice but to be judged on what they've done because they chose to reject being judged by what Christ had done for them. And so when that happens, every sin in your entire life will be laid bare before all, and that will be when you receive your just punishment. Let's look at Revelation 21.8 as one last reference. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friend, I will tell you that that description was me. I was cowardly. I hid behind my pride and my arrogance. I was faithless. I had none. I was sexually immoral. I was an idolater. I was a liar. And I should have had a portion in the lake of fire. But praise God. 
that in his infinite grace and mercy and wisdom, he made a way for me and he makes a way for you. And I simply bowed to the provenient grace, the Holy Spirit coming in and drawing me unto the Father and revealing the truth of the gospel to me. And I bowed my knee and said, I trust completely in what you've done rather than what I can do, Lord. And from that day, I have been a new creation. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And I have no fear of death. And you can have no fear as well. All you have to do is believe that Jesus is who he says he is. I want to go right back to John chapter 11 and just ask you the question again. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If you've never believed it before and you believe it starting today, it's very simple. There's no magic formula. This is not some sort of paganism. The words are not important. It is the attitude of the heart. You simply begin to trust in what Christ has done rather than what you could do. Instead of trusting in something, we're all trusting in something, my friend. You're trusting in the fact that you served in the Sunday school or that you're a pretty good person or you haven't ever murdered anyone or you know you um, serve at the homeless shelter or you went down the aisle at youth camp a long time ago or you grew up in a Christian home and you always went to Sunday school or you went to Catholic school. These are all things we trust in that are things other than the finished work of Christ. If you're trusting in something like that, simply transfer that trust onto the work of the cross and say, Lord, I trust in what you have done, and I trust only in what you have done for my salvation. And at that point, you will be a believer. You will be a new creation. Christ will bring you into his kingdom, into his body, and um, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. You will be sealed and you'll be made a new creation, and uh, new things will begin. And all the things we're studying here will come alive to you in a way that they never have before. I hope that you have prayed that prayer either before this study or now during this study, and I hope that this study has been edifying for you. We will continue on in the book of John next week. We will also continue studying how to study the Scripture, how to rightly divide the Word of Truth. I pray this has been edifying for you. Until next week, guys, God bless you. Thanks for listening. We pray this has been edifying. If you've enjoyed the show, please give us a shout out on your favorite social media platform. Scott's username on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram is Scott Ross Online. That's Scott Ross Online, all one word. Also, please remember to go to scottrossonline.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, and discuss what you've learned with others. Until next time, continue to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. God bless you.